what can we learn from our Lutheran forefathers on how to face the challenges of a culture openly hostile to Christianity? Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled For Such a Time as This. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. You'll also find Pastor Will Whedon's article on the monthly Psalter, the free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. We are on the side of science. We want to have the full and complete and honest and forthright description of prenatal human beings to be the one that gets out there. We want to call out the gaslighting, anti-science, dishonest approach. For liberal democracy to work, it requires self-government. And for people to be self-governed, they have to have virtue. And virtue in a kind of a classical tradition and understood even at our founding, the source of virtue was found in religion. But when we open our eyes in death, we will see Jesus. And on that face is a smile, not a scowl. When we close our eyes in death, we will open them and our ears will be filled with the hymns of the angels. A lot of Christians talk about worship as us serving God, but the Lutheran emphasis is that God serves us through his word, through the sacrament. This is Will from Michigan, and I'm a Lutheran high school teacher and football coach. And I love beginning my day listening to Issues Etc. All right, guys, let's go. Jesus has this encounter with the rich young man, and he goes away sad because he had great wealth. Now, we usually focus on the man's claim to have kept the law, and Jesus closes that door to him. But Jesus, right after that, has some things to say about wealth and poverty and the rich. Did Jesus teach that Christians had to take a vow of poverty? On the other hand, in the book of Acts, we have Christians who are keeping all things in common. Does that mean that the apostles taught communism? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Pastor David Peterson will join us for part four of our series on the difficult sayings of Jesus today. Do Jesus and the apostles teach vows of poverty or communism? Dr. Ben Mays, general co-editor of Johann Gerhardt's Theological Commonplaces, will be alongside after that to talk about 17th century Lutheran theologian Johann Gerhardt on eternal life. And then our series, Responding to Roman Catholic Proof Texts, will talk about sanctifying grace with Dr. Stephen Parks, Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Concordia University, Irvine, California. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, welcome back. Thank you. Is there something about our everyday experience as relatively affluent 21st century Americans that makes it difficult for us to really grasp what Jesus is getting at when he talks about wealth? I think for sure there is, because by the standards of the Bible, basically everybody in America lives like a king, right? So goodwill and the Salvation Army will not take microwave ovens or television sets, because nobody in the United States is so poor that he doesn't have at least one of each of those things, right? So I don't mean that we don't have people that are homeless, or we don't have people that are struggling with hunger and so forth, but 
it's a strange world we live in that we are so affluent that we have so much stuff, right? I mean, think about hoarding. That, that doesn't exist in the ancient world. There's greedy people, there are misers, but the idea that you could have a house and have 42 cats. So yeah, we're living in a strange place where we've been almost ruined in many ways by how much stuff we have. Just to kind of give us some, some of that first century Palestine context, talk about what life was like for just the average Jewish person and how they lived in terms of their wealth and what they had. I mean, they lived pretty close to the edge. One bad crop wasn't going to necessarily kill them, but probably two years of drought would. So they had enough if they cooperated and if they served one another, but they were living pretty close to the bone. And many of them, of course, were beyond. I mean, they were living in the people that are beggars in the Bible are really starving. I mean, physically starving, wasting away. So it, it's a much harsher world. It's become kind of a trope when these passages come up for discussion in Bible class or in the lectionary for the automatic disclaimer to come out of the preacher's mouth. You know, not that there's anything wrong with money kind of a thing. <laughs> seems to me a little too facile when we're often warned about the snare of wealth and greed. Absolutely. In fact, uh, I, I preached recently. I think maybe we do need to translate the passage, the love of money is the root of all evil. I think, you know, that's often misquoted as money is the root of all evil. I think maybe we should just leave it that way because elsewhere, Paul says that the desire to be rich is damning. And I agree with you. We're, we're way too caught up in this, and it's very difficult. I know I live in a glass house on this, of course, because I'm also an American, and my daydreams tend to be about money. I mean, I tend to think that money would solve problems. If we had more money, then the school would be fine. If we had more money, I could do all this great stuff. And that's just really idolatry. And I mean, we should know that from experience. We can see, you know, in the lifestyles of the rich and famous, how unhappy and dissatisfied people are. We could look at the history of lottery winners and see how it destroys their lives. But there's something broken in us that just doesn't believe it, right? We, we think we could be different or we fantasize that we could. And that's a dangerous idolatry that exists in us that needs to be rooted out by God's word that we need to repent of and we need to learn how to be generous and how to not live for money and the stuff it can buy. So the text that we'll be covering today in Matthew and then a little later in the book of Acts, do they teach communism or that Christians must make a vow of poverty? No. I mean, there's a balance in these things and that's always the difficulty. But they do sound like that at first reading. So I'll read you the Matthew 19 account, This uh, starting in verse 16. Now behold, one came to Jesus and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So he tells the young man, right, to go and sell everything that he has and give to the poor, and the young man doesn't do it. I think in this instance, we should recognize a particular law preaching for this young man's particular problem. Not that there isn't a general principle to be taken from this, but that for him, this is a literal command. This is what he should have done and was unwilling to do. And for us, we also need to be willing to do this, but maybe not exactly in that way. Whatever you're sort of unwilling to do is ultimately the problem. If you're unwilling to live according to the sexual commandments of God, or if you're unwilling to attend worship services according to the third commandment. I mean, the thing that you refuse to do that God says you must do, that'll be the thing that ultimately damns you. I suspect that here, Jesus maybe is using part of his omniscience. He can actually see into this young man's heart so he knows precisely. Maybe it comes just from observation. But in any case, Jesus has great wisdom to apply this law in a specific way. So it's not applicable to us directly in exactly all of its connotations. At the same time, just as you were saying, it should be a a great warning to us that money is a dangerous God that will destroy us, and it needs to be put to use for our neighbor. It's interesting when Jesus is giving him the law, right? He says, what commandment should I keep? Jesus doesn't quote the first table of the law at all. He starts with the fifth commandment, not the fourth, right? He goes five, six, seven, eight, and then he goes back to four, never gets to nine and ten, and then summarizes with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's interpretive, I think, for us when he says in the next thing to him, right? When the guy arrogantly says, oh, I've done all that, which we know he hadn't. But when he says, well, if you want to be perfect, right, then really do it. If you really think you can keep the second table of the law, well, then love your neighbor as yourself by giving up all your stuff. Because if you've got money in your bank account, right, and that guy doesn't, well, you've already proven that if it was, what you would do for yourself is have money in your bank account. So you need to give up everything and give it to him. So it's meant to expose him, and it does. That exposure is meant to lead to repentance. Unfortunately, in his case, it doesn't. And then the disciples, <laughs> their response is perfect, right? This scares them, and it should, right? Jesus says to them, truly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're greatly astonished. Who can be saved? They recognize themselves in the young man, that they have the same idolatry in them, that they also, even though compared to us, they have almost nothing, they realize the danger it proposes. And then Jesus gives them the gospel as those who are struck by the law, right? Look, this would be impossible for you, but it's possible for me because I can save you by my grace. I want to just track back through some of that encounter because Jesus apparently lets the young man go away sorrowful by omitting the commandment on coveting, by omitting the first commandment in particular. He's almost highlighting them for us that this young man, his problem was that kind of idolatrous heart. And yet Jesus 
kind of leaves him with the law. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think here, you know, Jesus is being a good Waltherian, you know, and the proper distinction between law and gospel that this young man is not ready for the gospel. The gospel will not be heard or understood by him because he, he won't accept the law. He won't repent. So Jesus doesn't cast his pearls before swine. It's not to say that, of course, you know, that the young man never comes to his senses, that this, you know, maybe this takes time. Luther one time said that the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. I think, by the way, Luther's totally right about that. That that is in some ways, this is going to probably come off poorly, but my experience is that when people convert to the faith or have an awakening to the faith and become more active in church and start to, you know, take it really much more seriously, reading the Bible every day, coming to church every week and so forth, it takes a long time before they're ready to tithe, right? In terms of, you know, first fruit sacrificial giving sorts of stuff. They'll do everything else first, right? They'll start coming to church. They'll start reading the Bible. They'll start saying prayers. They'll memorize the catechism. They'll serve on committees. They'll get involved. The last thing to go. So there is something there that I think demonstrates our heart. And this guy's got a problem. But the law could work on him over time. This has been preached to him. Jesus does preach this to him in mercy. You're right. He leaves him with the law. He lets him walk away. He doesn't try to convince him. But Jesus, of course, is also perfectly wise. Despite what Walter says, I don't think I've ever done that. You've had similar situations. I mean, people don't come to us and typically say, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But we do have these sort of difficult situations pastorally where we're preaching the law and people aren't really receiving it. They're not buying it for whatever reason. They're resisting it. I mean, it's often these days kind of sexual stuff. But I always feel obligated to have a caveat in there, right? Something to the effect of, if you repent, when you repent, you know, know this, that Jesus loves you, that he's ready to offer his forgiveness, that he's gracious. I mean, I'm uncomfortable leaving it the way Walter says to and the way Jesus does here. Pastor David Peterson is our guest, departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. We're answering the question, did Jesus or the apostles teach vows of poverty or communism? When we come back... He also does not argue with the young man about his claim to have kept the commandments. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Have you thought about eternal life? When does it begin? What is eternal life? Well, your eternal life does not begin when your body, earthly body, fails and is laid into the grave. It begins, in fact, in the waters of holy baptism where you are tied to the death of Christ and in him you were raised. To learn more about this topic of eternal life, pick up your copy of the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. 
Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. At Hope Lutheran Church in Sunbury, Ohio, you will find rest for your soul, strength for the day, forgiveness of sins, and hope for the future through Jesus Christ. Because at Hope, you'll hear the Word of God faithfully taught and receive the sacrament faithfully delivered. This is Pastor Ben Meyer inviting you to join us at Hope for Bible class and Sunday school at 9.15 a.m. and the Divine Service at 8 and 10.30 a.m. Find us on the web at hopelutheransunbury.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part four of our series on the difficult sayings of Jesus. Does Jesus or the apostles, do they teach vows of poverty or communism? Pastor David Peterson is our guest. David, another thing that Jesus doesn't do with this rich young man is argue with him regarding his claim to have kept the commandments. I know, that's amazing, isn't it? Because we want to argue with him. (laughs) I think it's, again, Jesus has this perfect wisdom, and he recognizes the futility of it. And in fact, he probably is more effective by not arguing with him, by, by simply raising the stakes and exposing it and then letting the guy live with it rather than getting into a a contest where the guy would become defensive. What does this mean with man, this is impossible, with God, all things are possible? You said that was the gospel, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely, because the gospel is impossible for men, right? It is impossible for us to go to heaven, not just because we're rich, but because of all of our sins. And the only way we're getting into heaven is if our Lord Jesus Christ gives it away for free, right? There's no way we can buy it or earn it. There's no way we can impress him with our good works and the like. So it is impossible according to justice, strictly speaking in terms of our keeping of the law, it is impossible for us to do it. But it is possible for Jesus to keep the law and he has kept the law, right? And he's allowed the law to do to him all that should have done to us. He's made this atonement for us. He has opened heaven by grace, which is a miracle, right? And then offers it for free. So he can do, of course, what we could never have done. Now, again, I agree completely with your warning about the warnings or the warning about the caveats earlier, that this doesn't mean that we should then live as pigs and just get as rich as we want and in every way, We are being called upon to be generous and to be compassionate to our neighbors and to not live for ourselves, right? To love your neighbor as yourself means don't live for yourself. So he is calling us to sacrifice and to think about things differently, right? To not store up treasure where moth and rust destroy and so forth. At the same time, thanks be to God, he doesn't leave it there. He has made satisfaction for us. You know, he didn't become a man just to taunt the disciples with how bad they were, just to show them what they couldn't do. He came to actually do it for them and for us. There's a a terrible irony in the picture that Jesus paints here of a rich man endeavoring to enter the kingdom of God, but not being able to. 
And, you know, the comparison here, I think, is we've talked about Jesus, his hyperbole, passing a camel through the eye of a needle. That's not just impossible, that's ludicrous in its impossibility. But the irony here seems to be that this man does sincerely want to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's keeping him out? What is it about being wealthy that is making him too big to enter by the narrow door? Yeah. And, uh, you know, apparently this is a whole class of people, right? So this isn't a unique problem just for this guy. This is a problem that people who are rich have, that it's very difficult for them. I suspect that it is that they're too sufficient. That is that they're not beggars, right? That the physician comes for those who are sick. And in this case, the beggars come in as a gift, not by paying the entry fee. And it's hard for the self-sufficient, right? Those who feel successful or feel as though they have know-how or street smarts or whatever, it's hard for them to think that they need to be given this gift completely for free that they in no way have deserved. That with wealth comes typically pride that we think we deserve our wealth. I mean, it's the whole double standard thing that we're all guilty of. When we look at our own success, we feel like we worked for it. When we look at other people's success, we think they got lucky. And so the truth is we've all been lucky. I would say we were all basically lucky to be those of us who were born in America, right? What did we have to do with it? To live in this day and age and in this country means to be affluent. You know, we're not affluent because we're smarter than the people living in Uruguay, or I don't even know what the poorest country is. So I think that's probably what's at the the root of it. The rich have a a temptation, particularly to self-sufficiency or a delusion of self-sufficiency. We live in an age where rich is a relative term. Somebody that has, you know, $1,000 more in their bank account is rich than me. And then we have the obscenely wealthy. They kind of rule our world. I mean, it is a plutocracy, whether or not they hold public office. And many of those who do hold public office are also obscenely wealthy as well. We have this kind of American disdain for the Jeff Bezoses, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Elon Musks of the world, while at the same time, you mentioned this before, secretly wishing <laughs> it was me. Right. Jesus says, this would be bad for you. And, and we're all sort of saying, I'd be willing to try it. Right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly right. There is this fleshly admiration for success. At the same time, with all these warnings, we do want to also give, we don't want to go off the other side of the horse or whatever and get the idea that Jesus doesn't embrace private property, right? The seventh commandment clearly establishes the reality of private property. And also the Bible's ethic is that you would love your neighbor, not that the government would take your stuff and give it to your neighbor. So communism is right out from a biblical point of view. I mean, the seventh commandment just destroys it, right? That there is the reality of private property, but also even the idea that the government would be in charge, the state would be in charge of charity and of taking care of the poor is also actually problematic for us because it removes our vocation from us that we're supposed to be helping our neighbors. And if we rely upon that, that's not right. So the Bible doesn't exactly teach capitalism, but the Bible does teach the superiority of the family and the family business and private property. 
And it does also embrace the idea that work is worth reward, right? So we have the second Thessalonians passage that if you don't work, you shouldn't eat, which sounds pretty harsh in our world. And of course, that's meaning people that refuse to work, not people that can't work. You also have Ephesians 4, where the thief should no longer steal, but should work and explicitly so that he might have something to give to the poor. So all of this is to demonstrate, I think, that our relationship with money is fraught with difficulty. We, we lust for it. We desire it. We, we, we give away what's in our heart by our daydreams. We show our perversions and what we really love and trust and want. We also, I think, make a mistake in we want somebody else to take the burden of loving our neighbor off of us, right? If the government would take care of this, then I wouldn't have to worry about it. You know, we're going to be standing with the goats on the last day, and Jesus is going to say, when didn't you do this? And we're going to say, hey, I paid my taxes. Well, that's right. That's a goat answer. That's not the right answer. And we can't pay somebody else to take our vocations. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. It's our series on the difficult sayings of Jesus today. Did Jesus and the apostles teach vows of poverty or communism? We'll take up that communism question in the book of Acts next. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, as we move on into St. Luke's Gospel, we come to the Annunciation, the Visitation, Magnificat, Nativity of St. John the Baptist, and Benedictus Part 1. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. This new resource will help you navigate God's Word with clarity and confidence. Ten Questions to Ask Every Time You Read the Bible is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Ten Questions to Ask Every Time You Read the Bible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. As we prepare for the Advent season this year, it's time for some contemplation. Your Christmas are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Don't celebrate another Christmas hearkening back to the age of glitter balls. See Ad Crusom's beautifully designed Christmonds together with our book describing how they fit into the church year. Visit adcrusom.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. You can teach lay people theology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Ben Mays of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Here's what Martin Luther says about the pastoral office. My pastor is practicing the virtue that increases God's kingdom, fills heaven with saints, plunders hell, robs the devil, wards off death, represses sin, preserves peace and unity, 
and plants all kinds of virtue in the people. In a word, he is making a new world. He builds not a poor temporary house, but an eternal and beautiful paradise in which God himself is glad to dwell. We are calling good men to step up. Come to Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thanks to Zion Lutheran Church in Pleasant Plains, Illinois, and Faith Lutheran Church in Dunedin, Florida, for recently renewing their annual sponsorship of issues, etc. Most congregations are planning their budgets right now for next year. When your confessional Lutheran Church pledges $1,000 to support this worldwide outreach, we will promote your congregation on the podcast at our website and in the Issues, etc. journal. You'll find an informational flyer on the support donate page at issuesetc.org, or you can learn more by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. Become an Issues Etc. Congregational Sponsor in 2023. It's part four of our series on the difficult sayings of Jesus answering the question, do Jesus and the apostles teach vows of poverty or communism? Pastor David Peterson is our guest. He's pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of Godestine's The Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. So let's look at these Acts passages. The two accounts here have something in common. It says that the believers did not consider anything to be their own, but they had all things in common. So what are these passages, and what do they teach? Well, from uh, chapter 2 of Acts, fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So many people have read that and said, oh, that sounds like communism. But, but listen carefully, right? They have all things in common doesn't mean that they have nothing privately. It means that they're sharing, right? That they sell their possessions and goods and divides them among all as anyone had need means that they're taking care of those who have needs, not that everyone has the exact same amount. There's really no reason to think that this is a communist kind of thing, but it is very much a demonstration of living in a community of love covering a multitude of sin, of generosity, right? And then the the other one here from Acts 4, starting in verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all were possessors of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. So again, this is, it sounds at, at first blush, it might sound sort of like a communal property ownership because it does say that no one considered the things he possessed to be his own, but that is to say they don't consider the things they have to be their own, they are their own but they have them in common in the sense that they're ready and willing to share them with those who have need. So again, it's a call to generosity, not to being stingy or to miserliness or to trusting in goods, but it's not a call to communism either. So we have to take all of that. And and really those three passages, by the way, I think are it. 
I mean, that that's the only sort of passages that I think a communist could really try to justify his position from. Because there's plenty of other stuff in the Bible that demonstrates that to be equal before the law means to stand before the law and to be judged by it and held up to its standard in the same way. Not that everybody has the same amount of stuff. And we could make other arguments based on scripture about God giving a diversity of gifts to the church and to the body and even to the world that implies at the very least, if not almost demands a kind of, uh, what I can't remember the economic term, where there's the division of labor and then uh, by specialization, instead of each man trying to be self-sufficient on his own, there's a great efficiency and increase of wealth when there's a division of labor and specialization, right? So the Bible, I think, anticipates that, kind of expects that. You also see, I think, something of that even in creation before the fall with the be fruitful and multiply. That is that the earth, even the economy is part of creation and we're to have dominion over it. That is to say that we're to make it productive for the good of our neighbor, right? The Bible doesn't describe the Garden of Eden before the fall like the Amazon jungle. It describes it like one big giant farm. You know, have the same sort of thing in Psalm 23, right? To lay down beside still waters. The word there means canal. Those are irrigation ditches, right? Again, this isn't a wild space. It's a fruitful space that's productive, that is serving its purpose of serving its lords, which are human beings who serve the Lord, right? So the economy itself is really meant, human beings are meant to be productive, creative, and there is to be a kind of multiplication. But within that, there is now since the fall, there is a great opportunity for sin and temptations abound. So the division of labor and the specialization of that sort of thing can create all sorts of tyranny rather than seeking to be productive for the good of my neighbor. I could just be productive for the good of my bank account. I could use money as a way of keeping score, right? Whoever has more is a better person. I mean, you brought up the insanely rich, like Jeff Bezos or whoever. Maybe I can be rebuked on this, but uh, I find that distasteful. I mean, that just is, it is, I think you used the word obscene. I think that's exactly right. It's obscene. There's no sense in that. There's no reason anybody needs that much money. It doesn't seem to me that a Christian, I don't know how a Christian would have that much money. And I realize, I, I suppose some of those people are working at giving it away, but there is a call to be good to the people that work for you, to your employees, to your customers, that all of this would be done in love and not simply for self-promotion and the like. So you also have parables like the farmer that builds a silo and then he dies that night. So what was it about these early Christians that so moved them, albeit we're talking about a community in Jerusalem of probably 5,000 people at this point. What was it about this newfound comfort of the gospel that moved them to live like this? Because it certainly isn't the way, at least as Christianity expanded, it isn't the way that Christians tended to live after the era of the apostles. No, it, it isn't. I mean, there's always been movements towards this. The, you know, the monastic movements are related to this. There is 
a Christian desire that, again, can be corrupted, but to, to live in community, close community and interdependence, ordered by prayer and the word of God in all that we do. There have been movements like that, but, but writ large, no. I think that it's probably what happens. This is a bit speculative, but I think what these earliest Christians realize in a profound way and feel at a very deep level is that they are now brothers and sisters. That is that they have become a real family and that baptism has bound them together far closer than biology or DNA ever could have. And that they're simply responding as one giant family, right? You know, if your children come to you, and I bet they have, right, and they need some money making a down payment, or they need some help with this or with that, I mean, you give it to them. So I think that's what—that's really what happens, is they're, they're more aware of the bond that's been created. Not that that bond didn't exist for believers in the Old Testament also, but of course, there is a greater fulfillment in the New Testament, and it is a deeper bond because it more obviously crosses the line of Jews and Gentiles and, and ethnicity and so forth. And I think they're just responding in love. And as it gets bigger and also gets kind of normalized, it just becomes sort of more difficult to carry out in this way. But we still have in our, you know, in our circles, we still have things like the ladies' aid, which is, you know, a mutual aid society, ideally. Uh, it's not supposed to be a gossip club, right? This is where the women of the congregation in particular would get together to help one another and to do things like send meals over to people after they've been hospitalized or to organize their men to go and, you know, rake the lawn and to actually give real aid. And most of our congregations also have things like benevolence funds and, and other sort of charity work that they do. I mean, it is difficult, admittedly, when the government is also doing it. I mean, frankly, it, it makes it very difficult. Here, where I serve, we get people knocking on the door kind of opportunity-wise. They're walking by, and they'll knock on the church door and ask for money. I mean, that happens. It varies, but a couple times a week, I'd say. And I don't give them money. And one of the reasons I don't give them money is because I don't have any way to vet it. And I also, I'm not sure in our city how dire the need is, right? So when I tell them, right, they say, well, I need, I need money because whatever. So usually, you know, they need, they, there's always a story, right? Which I'm always suspicious of because I've heard all these stories, a version of them so many times. And then I say, well, call 211. They're the clearinghouse and they have all of these services. It's not just government. It's, it's all these charitable things. And, you know, there's a bed you can sleep in at the rescue mission tonight. They're not full. And nobody ever takes me up. Almost nobody's ever taken me up on it. So, but it's kind of hard, right? How do I, we have to be good stewards of our resources and we don't want to waste them on people that aren't actually in need, but just want to buy drugs or something. And how do you kind of work that out? And it's hard when it's messy when we live in communities that are too big to know everybody. And when the government has gotten so involved, now how do we proceed? So returning to the first text that we looked at by way of kind of closing off this conversation, this really is for Jesus a first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me issue. How is that a first commandment issue? How does money relate to that? 
because money is what we trust in, right? This is what we believe in. I can't even tell you the number of times. I mean, it's shocking when people do it, but people will just be shocked when I suggest that they take a financial hit in order to save their marriage, for example. What? They'll be like, what? I can't do that. Jesus would never want me to not make as much money as possible or get married instead of living together and lose your husband's pension. And they're like, no, Jesus, that's something he would never ask. Yeah, he asks it all the time. I mean, it seems like practically the thing he asks the most often. How can they be so blind to it? Well, they want to be blind to it. We want to be blind to it. Because in fact, right, if I walk into the grocery store with money, I believe that the clerk will take the money and give me what I want for it. And if I walk into the grocery store with just a prayer to God, our Heavenly Father, I'm not so sure. So what do I trust in? I trust in the money. That's a problem. If I'm a Christian, it's a first commandment issue because whatever you put your trust in above God is in fact your God. So, and then of course you could, we also love money and we also fear the loss of it or what people will use it for us. So money is hugely powerful. And I, again, I I really like that. It's the last part of a man to be converted. I think it does expose us again and again as really where in a sense we live and where our hearts really are. So it's an incredibly profound call to repentance. Again, by the grace of God, thanks be to God. If we respond as the disciples did, and let's please respond that way, who then can be saved, right? Who can use money the right way? Who can love his neighbor as himself? How do we even, it just feels impossible. And it is impossible. But Jesus says with him, it is possible and his promise is sure. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's departmental editor of Godestinks, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. You'll find a link to Godestinks on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. David, thank you again. Thank you, Todd. Dr. Ben Mays joins us on the other side. We're going to talk about 17th century Lutheran theologian Johann Gerhard on eternal life. Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting lcms.org slash stewardship. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical Curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com. Lugia Journal, the Confessional Dogmatic Series. The works of Kurt Marquardt and many other resources are all brought to you by Luther Academy. 
Did you know that during this time of COVID-19, your purchases and donations help Luther Academy supply these same resources to pastors around the world? Please consider helping us with this important need through your prayers and financial support. Learn how you can help by visiting lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com.